This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 24th, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. On this week's show, we got two green chemistry stories as part of a special issue of the magazine. First, contributing correspondent Warren Cornwall talks about a company that came up with a replacement for the popular can lining material, bisphenol A or BPA, with help from the chemicals critics. And Beata Escher joins us to discuss the complex mixtures of human-made chemicals in the environment. How can new technologies help detect these mixtures, help understand their toxicity, and eventually connect their effects on the environment, wildlife, and people? First up in our Green Chemistry Special Edition of the podcast, we have contributing correspondent Warren Cornwall. He's here with a story about finding a replacement for the common can lining chemical, bisphenol A, or commonly known as BPA these days. Hi, Warren. Hi. You start with this fulcrum, this point where the tab of a can of soda attaches to the body of the can of soda. Why is that a good place to start the story? I never knew how amazing the science and engineering around making a can was until I started reporting this story. In this particular case, this point where the pull tab is attached to the top of an aluminum drink can is subject to these huge stresses. You have to imagine that the inside of this whole can is covered in this thin layer of plastic that can't break. In order to attach this pull tab to the top of the can, you basically have to pound with a machine on the can top to create this little bump. And then the pull tab sits on the bump And then you mash that bump flat. You quote someone as saying it's the most difficult fabrication in the whole universe. Well, I think he says in their whole universe. Okay, that makes sense. I don't think he's saying in the whole universe. (laughs) I don't think the people at CERN would appreciate that. But in the universe of can fabrication for linings, that's their crux. We're going to talk about the linings. The special liner inside of these cans usually contains BPA or bisphenol A. What exactly is the purpose? Yeah, cans contain all kinds of material that can potentially be corrosive, all kinds of acidic drinks. I don't know if you remember from elementary school, uh, an experiment where one of your teachers would put a nail inside of a jar with Coke 
a few days later, the nail would be gone. So yeah, yeah. the stuff is corrosive. Right. And apparently the kinds of stuff that we're putting into cans now is even more corrosive than it used to be. All these kind of fancy craft beverages, energy drinks. So they don't want it to eat holes in the cans. And then the flip side of that is that if you've ever put a piece of aluminum in your mouth, it tastes weird. And you don't want that flavor to go into the food or drinks. So the properties that a a can lining material have to have are resists corrosion, obviously. What other things are important? Doesn't create any weird flavors of its own. Ideally, it's inert. So it doesn't react with anything Mm -hmm. that's inside the can. In a perfect world, it's not at all toxic. It's totally benign. It has to be as cheap as possible, and it has to go on the cans really easily and really quickly because they're cranking out cans at a rate of 2,000 a minute. So BPA, which I think most people have heard of at this point because of concerns about its effect on health, it checks a lot of these boxes except for the health one. What are the health concerns when it comes to BPA? Well, the main concern is that it can mimic estrogen. When the body encounters BPA, it can bind with estrogen receptors enough that the body can think that it's binding with estrogen. There's a lot of debate going on about how much of a health risk is really posed by BPA in the levels that it's found in people's bodies. The FDA still allows it to be used in most food-related containers with the exception of baby bottles and sippy cups. So the FDA has said that the science suggests that it's not really a problem in other settings and the chemical industry and other industry groups have taken that same message. But you have consumer groups, environmental groups, and some university researchers that have done work suggesting that it can be problematic. One of the stats you mentioned in your story is about how more than 90% of people who live in the U.S. have BPA in their urine. Yeah, we pretty much all have BPA in us. Mm-hmm. And some governments, non-U.S. governments, have also decided to ban PPA, right? You know, the only one that I know of that's fully banned it is France. Right. And, you know, one other thing I should note, just going back to a comment that you made earlier about BPA in cans, I've been told that for food cans in the United States, about 90% of it is non-BPA at this point. So food cans like peas and corn. Drink cans too or no? For aluminum drink cans, it's about 50-50. Okay. They've cut way down on this, but about how much BPA is still out there? Do you know how many cans with this liner are made every year or every month? Yeah. Estimates are worldwide that we crank out about 450 billion, with a B, cans every year. Yeah. 350 billion of those are aluminum drink cans. The other 100 billion are food cans. Some not small percentage are lined with BPA. That's right. You talked to scientists at a company called Valspar that came up with a a new BPA alternative a few years ago in a very unusual way. How did they get involved? Valspar in 2017 was purchased by Sherwin-Williams. Okay. This company had a business making chemical can linings. And one of the significant parts of that business for them was making BPA-based linings. But they and other manufacturers were seeing the pushback from consumers and some governments against BPA. And so they were looking for alternatives. What they were finding is that the alternatives had drawbacks. Right. 
some of them were more expensive or didn't hold up as well or didn't perform in some way that Canyon manufacturers wanted. Or if they were trying to find a replacement in the same family of chemicals as BPA, that family of bisphenols, there was concern that those chemicals were going to have some of the same health-related concerns that BPA had. Everybody was pushing to find a BPA replacement because the biggest fear is that governments are going to step in and say, no more BPA. Right. I mean, the thing that's interesting to me is that they decided to go for it because you can imagine a company saying, oh, man, that could be a really expensive dead end. There's a guy in the story who kind of figures in the Tom, Tom Mallon. And he's interesting because he's very much an industry insider. He's worked at this company his whole life. But he, from the outset, said, look, we're going to have to go about this a different way. We're going to have to reach out to people outside the industry. People outside the industry don't necessarily trust us anymore when it comes to things like BPA safety. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have to think about this a different way. Okay. You know, people tell me that this is really unusual. That this oh. is a real culture shift. So what do they do to narrow the pool of chemicals out there to replace BPA as a lining? So they bring in a chemist from the outside who has experience in the pharmaceutical industry and the the pesticide industry. So basically, he had this long list of bisphenols that might work as can liners. Mm -hmm. And the first screening that he did was running them through a computer program that would see whether they were likely to fit in the estrogen receptor or not. And then the ones that came out as potentially non-estrogenic, they then sent off for a series of lab screenings. The basic one was a yeast screening where these yeast cells have been engineered to glow when they're exposed to an estrogenic compound. At that point, they have to do more tests to find out if these chemicals are also going to work well as a can liner. They finally narrow it down to one candidate. Wow. It's called tetramethyl bisphenol F or TMBPF. They narrowed it down to this one chemical and it had passed some basic tests when it came to its ability to affect estrogen receptors. And it was able to stand up to the, the harsh environment of inside a can. This is where they turned to, basically, they turned to their critics and said, you tell us that this isn't safe. It wasn't that they were challenging them. The way they described it to me is they were coming to scientists and saying, we want to build a better molecule for this. What should we do to make sure that it's actually going to be safer? Yeah. They posed this question to environmental and public health advocacy groups, and they posed that same question to researchers who have done a lot of science studying BPA. Mm -hmm. And they actually took the chemical to their labs and tested it out in a bunch of different ways. Yeah, that's right. They set up the payment in a way that the scientists said really kept their independence. So the best example is an endocrinologist at Tufts, Anna Soto, has done a lot of work on BPA and its effect on breast tissue. The company made a contribution to Tufts with no strings attached, so it was not her to her lab specifically. And then she came to Tufts and said, give me money for my research. And she found that there weren't estrogenic effects from this alternative to BPA. Yeah, that's right. She didn't find any evidence that it was estrogenic. Mm -hmm. And then the secondary element that was interesting is that she didn't find evidence that the can lining was leaching any of its 
TMBPF contents into the liquids. This canned landing chemical has been approved by the FDA for use in food product containers. So it's already on the market. It's already something that people have probably encountered in their day-to-day life. The company has said that their chemical has been used to line 22 billion cans since 2017. Wow. So a lot of cans, but a small fraction of the overall universe of cans. Right. Going back to the safety testing that we talked about, I think it sounds wise to approach people who have built up the skills to test for endocrine disruption in their labs. But is there ever a way to know if something is safe? It's kind of like the bigger question. If the FDA's testing aren't necessarily rigorous enough, what should be happening to show that a chemical is safe to go sit next to food that might absorb it? Yeah, that's an open question. Part of what was interesting to me about this story is that when Valspar went looking for an alternative route for testing their product, there was no roadmap for them to follow. Mm -hmm. And that's still the case. They can't point to a battery of tests and say, look, we have jumped through these hoops that everybody has agreed are the hoops that we should jump through. Right. We did it successfully. And therefore, we can declare our chemical to be a gold star green label chemical. Is there a movement to codify something as an endocrine disruptor if it does this and if it doesn't do these things, these five things or these 10 things, then it's not an endocrine disruptor? There are various efforts to come up with better, more rigorous, more detailed ways of screening chemicals for possible endocrine disruption. Regulators would argue that they currently have tools for declaring whether a chemical is an endocrine disruptor or not. And they're working on improving them. So uh, it's not like they're saying that their way is the only way and there's no improvement to be done. Right. Are other companies going to follow this model of looking for chemicals to replace something that people have a lot of questions with and then turning to people outside industry to test it for health concerns? I don't know. I mean, I've talked to you know some people who have said that they think that it's a promising model. They think that the experience that Valspar has had suggests that a company can do it successfully. But, you know, I've talked to other people who have said that there are companies who are working to develop greener, safer chemicals, but have really chosen to do it internally and keep it to themselves, partly because there is a concern that if you say that you're trying to replace one of your chemicals with something safer, you're bringing attention to concerns about safety of the chemical you're currently using. Well, thank you so much, Warren. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Sarah. Warren Cornwall is a contributing correspondent based in Washington State. You can find a link to his article and the rest of the special section on Chemicals for Tomorrow's Earth at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Beata Escher about tracing mixtures of human-made chemicals in the environment. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today.
This week's issue has a special focus on chemistry of the future, making chemicals greener and cleaner. The chemicals we make need to be carefully considered and planned. And what happens to those chemicals in the environment also needs to be taken into account. But what about the chemicals produced by people that have already made their way out into the wide world? Beata Escher and colleagues tackle this question in their review on tracing complex chemical mixtures in the environment. Hi, Beata. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, We've released a lot of chemicals, some of them not good for people, some of them not so bad, but they're all mixed together out in the environment in different ways. Can you kind of outline this problem that you're trying to address? Well, there's good news to begin with. The concentrations of individual chemicals have been going down over the past decades. So those are the chemicals we're releasing or the chemicals that are in the environment already? The chemicals that we find in the environment. The concentration of the individual chemicals have really been going down. But bad news is the downside of it is that we're releasing more and more chemicals into the environment. So we get a complex mixtures of many, many more chemicals. So the threat is not one or two chemicals that we know, but the threat is mixtures of hundreds, thousands, maybe 10,000 or even millions of chemicals and their transformation products. And the difficulty that we can't quantify them easily one by one. Because they're so small, because there's also these byproducts, because they're in all different kinds of places? They're everywhere. The concentrations are very small. If you have them in water, you drink them. If you have in the air, you breathe them. Some chemicals degrade, but chemicals are pretty much ubiquitous and we find them in any sample that we test. If you have a sample from water and you're looking at the mixture of chemicals present in there that are, that are human-made, that are anthropogenic, what kinds of things do you see? We see basically everything what you have in your cupboard at home your dishwashing detergent, pesticides from agriculture. Yeah, we see your soap, which is probably not, not a problem, but we also <laughs> see, we can also see drugs if we want. What's important for us when we look at the mixtures, we see certain effects and certain effects that we always detect, for instance, in waterways are estrogenic chemicals and they pose a hazard for the fish population. This is like hormones. Hormones, yeah. Those are very potent even in low concentrations. Exactly. They're very potent. And then there's the non-specific effects. And that's probably an important point to make. A chemical that is detectable in the environment at, at a level where alone it doesn't pose an effect, it can still contribute to a mixture effect. Mm-hmm. And there's no magic about, about that. There's no synergy needed or no big interaction, but it's just the fact that all chemicals act together in a mixture. How is it different to look at these mixtures of chemicals that you talked about rather than evaluating chemicals in the environment one by one? Chemicals that are produced that are on the market, they change in the environment, they're transformed. So we might have a totally different cocktail from what we emit to what we then find in the environment. And there might be many more than a regular analytical program can detect. Our approach is to really look at the mixtures as a whole and try to identify chemicals, but also use bioassays, bioanalytical tools to actually quantify the mixture effects without identifying it down to every single component so that you don't know what it is, but you'd know how much harm it would do. And then you can start comparing sites and you can compare chemicals in different matrices. Okay. So that's taking it from 
finding out exactly what chemicals are in every sample to saying, well, here's our mixture. Here's what we have. How bad is it for these cells or this plant or this animal? That's exactly what we're doing. So we're extracting chemicals from complex matrices as comprehensive as possible. And these matrices can be the water we drink, can be surface water, the ocean. It can be sediments. It can be food we eat. It can be materials we handle, toys, anything. It can be our own tissues. It can be our blood, our saliva. It can be um, tissue wow. samples from organisms. It can be anything. What's challenging is to get the chemicals we are concerned about that pose an hazard out in a defined way without too much disturbing um, matrix effects mm -hmm. and really getting everything and not just getting a small part of it. Right. You don't want just the ones that come out easily. You want to focus on everything that's in there that's not supposed to be in there. Then you need to see if it does harm. And then you need to see where it is across all these different little compartments in the environment. Exactly. And, and so that's a big challenge. Um, and that's why it's not possible just to do it by one lab can do it and one method can do it. But that's why we're combining sophisticated analytical tools, mass spectrometry. We've combined that with effect-based tools such as in vitro bioassays. How does looking at mixtures as a whole, how does this approach fit in with current models of monitoring the environment? There exist environmental quality standards, but they exist only for single chemicals. And the tools, the modern tools for tracking complex mixtures can also be applied to test environmental quality and to comply with present and future environmental quality standards. You can use it also for many other applications. We're using chemicals. We release chemicals with wastewater, but then wastewater is treated. And it can be treated to a perfect water quality in water recycling processes. And we can follow those processes and see how chemicals are degraded and removed with these type of tools. So it's not just looking what's there, but it can really be beneficial to track technical system to see how environmental action improves the environment. So there's many applications. It seems like having such low levels of these chemicals would be a good thing. Tiny, tiny amounts out there. But in a mixture, they get together and cause problems anyway? Yes, but you also have to see the other side. Um, our tools are very sensitive. So um, you can detect chemicals and even mixtures as levels where they don't cause a harm. So we have to really understand what's acceptable, how much we can have in the environment, to what degree do we have to clean up the water. The downside of being able to detect everything is also that not everything is, is relevant. And that's why these effect-based tools help us because they set it into the perspective of the relevance that is mm -hmm. the health hazard or the environmental effect. One thing that I took away from your review is that you're about to enter the land of big data. You're getting all these techniques up and running. You're getting all these ways to monitor the environment and understand what is being output into the environment. Is big data what you see as the next step in this field? To have big data means we can learn a lot and understand a lot, but we need new tools. I mean, I can't just sit in front of a computer and look at my data and make a conclusion. We need machine learning. We need new data analysis tools, and you just can't do it on the side. So the great thing about the way we address monitoring now is that we really work in teams. Can you take what you're learning about 
detecting chemicals and their effects and apply that to the regulation of chemicals in the future, to their release into the environment or the kinds of chemicals that are used in industry? Absolutely. One way of using these tools is already in prospective risk assessment before you even bring chemicals out to the environment that you use these type of tools to find out what the potential effect of chemicals are. But then for the monitoring side, the modern tools can facilitate any um, regulatory action on chemicals. It's actually to a point that while all regulation in all countries is still based on chemical by chemical approach, at least in research, there are already trigger values. We're using them as kind of a warning level, effect levels or mixture levels above which there might be a problem for the receptors or the, the animal living in that environment or the mm-hmm. human drinking um, that water sample or something like that. Can you give an example of how mixture-based testing, like we've discussed, could be incorporated into regulations? So we have aligned the WHO drinking water guidelines, which are chemical by chemical, and have expanded that to mixture indicators that at least in research are already quite highly used. And I think it's just a a question of time and testing and probing and improving that in the next few years, hopefully not decades, hopefully years, this can be um, translated into, into regulation. But at the moment, we are, we are on a research level. We are trying to explore. Right. Thank you so much, Beata. Well, thank you. Beata Escher is in the Department of Cell Toxicology in the Helmholtz Center for Environmental Research and a professor at the University of Tübingen. You can find a link to her review and the rest of the special section on tomorrow's chemicals at sciencemag.org podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you'll also find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. You can subscribe, of course, on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, and many other places. The show is produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. Special thanks to Megan Cantwell and Joel Goldberg. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, Triple S, thanks for joining us. <laughs>